suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother J.S. to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce Trial of the 20th Century, Part 8, the story of the boy genius murderers. Leopold and Loeb. And as as we had concluded in our last podcast, Leopold and Loeb, the boy geniuses, had decided to test their theory that they were supermen existing inside a world in which they were exempted from the ordinary rules, regulations, and the laws of Western civilization. And they began their stress testing by deciding to commit a series of petty crimes, which they pulled off without getting caught, but which by their very petty nature were such small crimes that they gained no public acclamation, no public attention as they went unreported. And they attracted no media attention whatsoever. So of what value was it to them, the boy geniuses, their genius, if their crimes did not yield evidence of their supermen powers? This is a rhetorical question. Inasmuch as the answer was completely intuitive. It was of no value whatsoever. And this bothered the two boy geniuses. Leopold more than Loeb, by the way. For If their exceptional talents weren't recognized by even ordinary men, how was their Superman status ever to be recognized and confirmed? No one would recognize their superior intellects um, and that there were super intellects in their midst if all the evidence of the existence of Superman lay unrevealed. Disappointed, with the absence of media attention, you know, due to the invisible nature of their petty crimes, the boys decided they needed to up the ante, up their game, carry out an audacious crime, thoroughly planned and precisely executed, worthy of their genius, and the kind of crime of which only genius was capable of pulling it off. This would This would require some thinking of which they were convinced who better to think about things than them, Superman. They would set about committing the sensational, perfect crime that by its very nature just had to garner widespread public media attention and would establish them as perpetrators of the perfect crime for what they were, what they already knew themselves to be. Superman. So Leopold and Loeb then spent the better part of a year devising, plotting, planning how together they might murder a targeted victim and then through their superior intellect avoid capture and punishment, thereby having committed by definition the perfect crime. What could possibly go go wrong? A heads up, 
Sometimes the hardest thing about committing the perfect crime is keeping the evidence of your genius to yourself. Unfortunately, if this proves to be your problem, lengthy planning won't resolve this problem. And for some people, they just cannot shut up. Certain types, certain types of criminals have inherent personality traits, defects, deviant you know, patterned behaviors which experienced detectives know to be the case. While they, have, while they have not seen it all, they've seen a lot. For example, experienced investigators know that it is common to arsonists to thrill in the fire that they have just set. So much so, they often can be found in the back of the crowd aroused by the blaze. Police can immediately narrow down the suspected arsonist list by focusing only upon the males gathered in the crowd of onlookers. And narrowed further, the suspected arsoner list will be the one caught masturbating at the scene. Cops are taught in big fires to wander near the back of the crowd to find these dangerous men with such perverse peccadillos. I mean, these, these lunatics make Salvador Dali, a man with so many weird fetishes, seem, well, seem normal. Well, almost normal. In any event, Leopold and Loeb, they then decided on their targeted victim. It would be their neighbor, 14-year-old Bobby Franks. And the method of his abduction was decided upon. The means, the method, and the location of the murder they define amongst themselves. A disposal site of the corpse was agreed upon. Further plans um, focused upon throwing the police off the scent. To accomplish this, Leopold and Loeb would distract and obfuscate the nature of the crime. You know, disorient and confuse police investigators as to the potential motive. They would call the Franks family, identify themselves as kidnappers, and send the Franks family immediately thereafter a written ransom demand. And by this means, they hoped, Leopold Loeb did, that they might confirm in the minds of the Franks family and the police their son was still alive, held captive somewhere by kidnappers, kidnappers waiting only the ransom payment. And the two would-be killers then devised intricate plans for collecting the ransom via a long series of, of complex instructions that would be communicated one set at a time by phone. And the geniuses then set about their work, thinking hard as only geniuses can. And the, the final set of ransom instructions involving the actual uh, money drop had been typed on a typewriter the killers had stolen from a college fraternity house at the University of Michigan where the two boys had committed a petty burglary. And, and now having targeted for kidnapping 14-year-old Bobby Franks, the two killers rented a car for the express purposes of using it in the commission of the perfect crime. And now it was go time. And while Bobby Franks was walking just a few blocks between his school and his home, 
Leopold and Loeb pulled up in that rent-a-car and lured Franks, who knew them from the neighborhood, to get into the rental car, suggesting that they had a tennis racket that he might be interested in. And at first, Bobby Franks, he resisted getting in the car, but the killers persisted, and to Franks' ultimate demise, he overcame his initial reluctance to get in that car, and he got into the front passenger seat of that rental car. And as Leopold pulled away from the curb, Loeb, Richard Loeb, seated in the back seat directly behind Bobby Franks, almost immediately leaned forward and began stabbing the boy you know, multiple times in the back of the head and the neck with a metal chisel. And as Leopold drove toward Hammond, Indiana, Loeb dragged the stunned, bleeding, terrified, screaming Bobby Franks over the uh, front seat into the back seat with him where he continued to repeatedly stab and bludgeon Bobby Franks. And the boy's screaming induced Loeb to gag Franks um, by jamming a rag into his mouth. And, And Bobby Franks died there in the back seat of that rental car. And the two killers, as previously planned, drove on to Hammond, where they they dragged Franks's body um, through a marshy, reed-filled field to a culvert where they undressed the dead boy. And as per their plan, they poured hydrochloric acid on his face and genitals. The latter action had been taken, and it was designed to mask the fact that Bobby Franks had been circumcised. And... That night, it, it already was known um, that Bobby Franks was missing. And the, the Franks family had already reported their son missing. And they did so almost immediately. They had reported it to the police when he had not returned from um, uh, school at, at the normal time. Leopold, later that night, called the Franks residence, talking to his, by now, frantic mother, you know, and Leopold identified himself as the kidnapper named George Johnson. And he confirmed that Bobby had been kidnapped and he informed the Franks that written instructions for the delivering of the ransom payment would follow shortly. And after special mailing the typed ransom note, burning um, their blood-stained clothing and cleaning the blood-stained upholstery of the rental car and the floorboards of that vehicle. Leopold and Loeb smashed the typewriter on which they typed the ransom note and they threw it into a local lake. And then they went about, they went about the rest of the night as if nothing unusual had taken place. Most of the night was spent just playing cards. Their intricate post-abduction plan, this aspect of their perfect crime had involved six to seven months of planning. And it had to be abandoned within two days when word was released by the Chicago police that Bobby Franks' body had been discovered. Uh Uh-oh. Now the Chicago police launched an an, an extensive investigation. A reward was, was offered for information leading to the arrest of the killer or killers. And for the first couple of days, Richard Loeb, he went about his his 
Um, normal daily routine quietly, doing nothing out of the ordinary, nothing that would appear suspicious in any way or bring inordinate attention his way. But on the other hand, Nathan Leopold, he was a different animal altogether. He weirdly and suspiciously couldn't and wouldn't seem to shut up. You know, some, some men aren't motivated by logic. They don't, they don't want money. They don't want women. They can't be reasoned with, negoti- negotiated with. They're, they're irrational. Crazy people. And with some, all they want is celebrity and fame for some unknown reason. And they don't care about how they go about getting it. And these can be dangerous men. But, you know, by way of illustration, like a century later, serial killer Dennis Rader had terrorized Wichita, Kansas. I mean, he killed in gruesome fashion, you know, 10 victims or more. No one quite knows for sure. But he grew bored after the police had not caught up with him after decades. And he began sending the police clues so as to taunt them, referred to as... um. The BTA, uh, BTK killer, uh, bind, torture, and kill. He'd grown very miserable, totally unhappy that he, he'd lost some of the notoriety, was out of the news, and wasn't getting the attention he felt he believed he deserved. And he was eventually outwitted by police and is now serving a life sentence. Nathan Leopold was was such a dangerous man. He was like this. He was thrilled at the attention police gave him when they were interviewing him as just another boy in the neighborhood of of the Bobby Franks killer. But suspiciously, Nathan Leopold, he offered up to police all kinds of theories as to what may have transpired in the Bobby Franks kidnapping murder case. Similarly, he, he regaled the news, you know, press reporters with stories of what might have occurred in the Bobby Franks murder case. And this obviously is very, very strange behavior and likely to bring attention to oneself. And in fact, Leopold, in hindsight, appeared to have been compelled just compelled to spin stories about the hideous lure death of Bobby Franks, of a teenage neighbor. And he would, he would spin these stories to anybody whom would listen to him. He so craved attention that he very, very weirdly had told one Chicago investigator, if I were to murder anybody, If I were to murder anybody, it would be just such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. And don't think for a moment that comment didn't make the hairs on the backs of the necks of experienced police investigators stand on end. And police zeroed in on Nathan Leopold immediately. I mean, the the metaphor that the investigation was was conducted under a microscope was only enhanced when police 
found a pair of eyeglasses near the body of Bobby Franks, a short distance from the culvert. The glasses were, were of a common enough make and uh, prescription, and, and, and it was, they were just so standard that they proved to be of little help to investigators. Until it was discovered, wouldn't you know it, this pair of nondescript glasses had been fitted with an unusually distinctive hinge known to have been purchased by only three customers in all the greater um, metropolitan Chicago area. And guess what? Wouldn't you know it? One of those purchasers, Nathan Leopold. In, in the world of spies, code breakers, and criminal detection, there exists no such thing as coincidence. To cops, there's no such thing as coincidence. There just isn't. There are no accidents in life. Everything that happens is a result of a calculated move that leads to where we are right this moment. And to the Chicago investigators, Nathan... You liked all that attention? Well, guess what, big boy? Nathan, you're going to get all the attention you ever wanted and more. Those eyeglasses in hand, the picture was growing clear. The Sh Chicago police were now focused in on Nathan Leopold. And it wouldn't be long now. Hey, we'll be back. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye. I slip from the harbor, head out to the sea. Crystal blue water surrounding me. Tap to the wind, taste the sea breeze Tropical heaven on the coral sea A little more rum I think of my wife What did I do, have I ruined my life? Tell her I've changed, become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can when did the skies change? When did we turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold. I've lost my sails, got to find a way home. Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life. Come on.
see a beautiful face smiling back at me. The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold. I've lost my sails, got to find a way home. When did the skies change? When did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life. When did the skies change? When did they turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife. I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life. See you.